Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused early-stage venture capital firm based in New York City. We're on a mission to invest in a thousand diverse founders over the next 20 years. This season, managing partners Henri Pierre Jacques and Jared Tingle sit down with Harlem Capital's limited partners, the investors who help bring the firm to life. Tune in as we share stories and insights on navigating the VC fundraising landscape, from pitching fund strategy to building relationships with LPs and successfully raising capital. In today's episode, we speak with Travis Haney and Ryan Rathman from the State of Michigan Department of Treasury. The State of Michigan oversees a $100 billion pension fund, which invests the retirement funds for Michigan public employees. Travis and Ryan, who focus on private equity and alternative investments, share insights from managing the portfolio, which has been investing in venture capital since 1983. Tune in as Jared, Travis, and Ryan discuss how the pension landscape has evolved its views on venture, the benefits of having a pension fund on your cap table, and advice for emerging managers going through their first market cycle. Hi, Ryan and Travis. Thank you so much for joining the Harlem Capital More Equity Podcast. We're very excited to have you all as part of our limited partner series. And obviously, I know you but our audience doesn't. So I'll read a quick bio. Ryan and Travis are senior portfolio and investment managers at the state of Michigan Department of Treasury, where they focus on private market and alternative investments. They're responsible for evaluating direct, co-direct and venture capital fund opportunities, which includes conducting due diligence, monitoring existing relationships and vetting new potential investments. It's my pleasure to have you both on. So I wanna take it all the way back to the beginning of our relationship would love to hear how you all first heard about Harlem Capital, if anything stuck out about the first time that we met. Sure, I'll take a stab at it, Ryan. You can fill in the blanks. Um, what was it, 20, 2018, 2019, I believe, when I think you actually ran into our deputy CIO, Robert Brackenberry, at a KKR annual meeting or event of some sort um, and had... Uh, chatted him up a little bit and so followed up with him and then he did you know what he does with anything that he finds interesting is ping myself uh and and ryan and you know hey what do you know um you know this 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 seemed like an interesting opportunity have you had any touch points which we hadn't at the time uh and so we um you know perhaps to a fault uh, although i i can't stop myself we we will take any meeting Pretty much. We'll, we'll limit it to 30 minutes now. We've gotten better because we just run out of time. But uh, an, initial, an initial meeting, we're pretty happy to take. The, the storyline was intriguing. We, you know, we, had, uh, we, we reached out to a couple of other folks that we know, you know, poking around, trying to find out what we could prior to the meeting. And um, yeah, and then obviously set up the meeting and, uh, you know, things went well. Great. Um, I do remember Henri and I, drove all the way out to, I guess, where you guys are based, which is near Michigan State, which was cool. I think you guys said, hey, you don't have to come all the way out here. Or both of you don't. But I was like, we have to go meet them if we have the opportunity. So I'm so glad that everything lined up. And I'm sure it doesn't hurt to, to meet in person at your office. No, no, it does not. It's actually something that we miss. Although there's some there's an efficiency to the 30 minute intro meeting via, <laughs> via Zooms or team. But uh, there's there's uh, definitely an intimacy that is lost. Indeed. 
So I guess thinking about to our, our original pitch, was there anything in particular that made you want to support the firm? And then on the other hand, what were some of your hesitations before going forward in your process and ultimately saying yes? Yeah, I, I, I can run with that one. I, you know, I'll answer it in reverse. I think that there is, you know, anytime we take a meeting with with a new manager, whether they be small first time fund or, you know, or any size at any stage in their life cycle, there's there's always some some hurdles to get over on kind of what is it uh, that, that gives us pause. But, you know, ultimately it was A, the team, B, the, the initiative that you guys had and, and the focus and, and aspirations that you had as a firm. And I think what we look for in any new relationship, whether it be an emerging manager or an established manager is, you know, what does it bring to the portfolio that is new and different? I think that we are at a certain maturity of our program. We've been investing in private equity and venture specifically since 1983. So it's an asset class we know pretty well. And so for us, it's a matter of trying to find different things to bring in that add uh, a different flavor. And certainly your sourcing philosophy and, and the types of founders that you were going after was something that we saw as something that in our mind could produce outsized returns. And so I think that you know, there there was no difference in talking to you than any other manager and trying to make sure that we understood what your special sauce was, but clearly what got us over the hump or were the things that I kind of mentioned. I was just going to say the other thing that I think, and, and I actually went and skimmed through your deck that you'd sent over for that first meeting, and it sort of reminded me of how, uh, you know, and perhaps this was driven by your you know, formal and informal relationships with KKR and TPG, some groups that had done it, but like there was a plan, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, hey, we're going to go raise the fund and then we'll see what happens. It was, no, we're going to raise this fund. And then this, this many years later, we're going to raise this fund and here's how we're going to go about it. And here's what we think we're going to do. And here's the people that we're going to bring in. And I thought that that was very professional from that standpoint and very, very well laid out. Um, I did notice though, that I think you said you were going to raise funds uh, three through five over 15 years. I feel like uh, you maybe are a little ahead of that schedule, but <laughs> so is everyone else. Um, any any other hesitations coming to your mind, Travis? Uh, take it back to what we were up to. No, I, just the standard, you know, sort of first time fund. You, you always want to figure out, you know, is this going to work, right? But the, the team had a rapport, obviously, and had experience working together previously. So, it wasn't just, uh, you know, sort of cobbled together in that sense. I think, I think Ryan, Ryan hit on them um, pretty well. Great. So Ryan mentioned that you all have been investing in VC since 1983, which is, I think, a, lo a long time. So you've seen a lot. But I'm curious, right? I would love to hear about pension funds in general approach to VC, because I feel like, at least as of when we were raising our first fund, not a ton were doing VC, at least earlier stage. But it seems like you guys have been very opportunistic and forward leaning. So I would love to hear about how pensions in general focus it for state pension plans, but also how you in particular have your own philosophy around VC. You want me to go with in general, Ryan, and you can layer in our approach? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we, we are, and a lot of that credit goes to our CIO for splitting out venture into its own division. Uh, and then uh, for me, just being smart enough to, to, to hire Ryan and Ryan being dumb enough to take the job. And from there, it all sort of worked out quite well. Um, but we, ha we have been 
I think relative to our peers, we, we'll write a smaller check. We'll do things that aren't necessarily efficient, but I think that they end up working out. I know some pensions, and there was a there was a theory. I think that it is slowly being eroded. That if you couldn't get in the top five VCs, you just shouldn't play the game. And, and there were a lot of pensions for various reasons, whether that was staffing, check size, um, you know, uh, comfort around FOIA, whatever it might have been, that just could not get access to those managers. So essentially opted out for a long period of time. I think that's changing. The data would show that it's not just those managers making money. Uh, that, that, that causes a problem on the other side now, though it's even harder to distinguish who's good. Right now, pretty much everyone looks good and, and, and there's a big chunk that look great. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we, we, we're definitely, um, we stand out. We've got, you know, there are others, I think that we, that we know and chat with that do, do a nice job as well. But it's definitely a limited subset of the pension world. No, I, I think you nailed it, you know, and to dive a little bit more into uh, the state of Michigan retirement system, I think that, you know, as Travis mentioned, it all started with uh, our CIO deciding to spin out the venture team. Um, you know, when, when I joined Travis about a year after that happened, uh, I had not sat in an LP seat before. And so I don't think that I realized how lucky I was joining a, a, a large pension that was as forward thinking um, and creative as as the state of Michigan, uh, you know, I talk to our peers, you know, um, and the question often we, we describe our program and they'll say, well, how did you do that? I mean, it's just it's just not the way that most pensions work. And so, you know, one of the main reasons our CIOs split it out is he just thought that the, the venture that we were doing uh, was getting a little bit lost in the shuffle, just given the check sizes, you know, for us. We will write checks somewhere in between two and a half million and 200 million into a single fund. And that's a pretty broad range. And it took me a couple of uh, a couple of deals to realize that it takes just as much work to write a two million dollar check as it does a 200 million dollar check. And so would I rather write one hundred two million dollar checks or one two? And so there is the the efficiency that Travis touched upon. You know, we have been able to to find ways to be more efficient in writing what are essentially smaller checks, you know, things that are sub $25 million. The core position for us tends to be $25 to $50 million. And so as we uh, as we think about the portfolio, um, it is trying to find, you know, uh, efficient ways to do stuff, but also realizing that we want to live and breathe and swim in, in this. And I think ultimately, that allows us to have deeper relationships, not only with our existing managers, but with managers that we want to know as they understand that, you know, we do have a nuanced program compared to other pensions in particular. Fantastic. And I have a question for you guys. Um, you know, feel free to decline if you don't want to answer, but I feel pretty strongly about certain endowments who have a very concentrated approach to only invest in a couple dozen managers, particularly the ones that are affiliated with universities uh, because in theory, they should be potentially more risk tolerant than you all as a retirement system. And they actually have plenty of alumni who probably do want to start funds. So the fact that in general, they're more exclusive doesn't feel great to me because I know there's a lot of emerging managers that haven't gotten that first shot because of their model. And that's a model that's kind of uh, persisted and pervaded a lot of, you know, some of the top 10 schools. So I'd love to hear your guys' take on that. Do you think that you know these endowments should be 
have a model more like yours where they're able to write, you know, smaller checks? Or do you feel like there's just different approaches and, and everybody can kind of do what's best for them? I, I won't speak, you know, to, to their model per se. Um, you know, I've got relationships with a handful and I, I think that they're very smart about uh, how they, they look at the world. You know, the one thing that I think is nuanced for us, you know, to take a step back, we are at almost a hundred billion dollar pension plan. Um, a little bit more than 50% of that is in, in private markets, inclusive of real estate infrastructure, real assets and private equity. The private equity slug is... 22%, 23%, somewhere in there. And that is made up of our venture investment, our buyout, our co-invest, and then all those have an element of growth to them. We've got about 4 billion, just under 4 billion committed to venture right now. So from a committed standpoint, we are you know, still low single digits on the amount of money that we're putting into venture, even though the absolute number is, is quite large. And so if you think about our willingness to write small checks, Part of that is that I would love to go deploy, you know, $300 million to your marquee early stage fund that is capped at five or $600 million. That's just not going to happen. And so for us to deploy capital, we actually have to go the extra mile and with the help of partners, to be quite honest, identify new and emerging managers across everything where we can say, hey, we have a vision that these folks have a strategy, have a plan we almost default to this is a multi-fund commitment unless something goes completely wrong. Because you know, after fund one or fund two, you may not have the results yet that are, that are on, on paper. And so we look at it as a way to grow with these managers over time so that we can write larger and larger checks. And so part of, us is, part of it is just, we wanna be strategic in nurturing the, the folks who are going to be the next platforms. And, I feel as though, you know, the endowments were there at some point. They had to back those early managers 20, 30 years ago. And they've, you know, they've continued to back their winners. Um, we, we want to do those, but we also want to find the next winners as well. So uh, I won't knock their model. Uh, I just think that for us to deploy the capital that we wanted to have a meaningful impact in a $100 billion pension plan, we have to, um, you know, perhaps cast a wider net and ultimately, we want to open the aperture as wide as possible because we do think there are managers out there that are attacking segments of the market that, you know, our existing managers just aren't. It's a great perspective. Thank you for, for taking the time to, to answer that one. Travis, would you add anything else there? Uh, only that I wish I would have uh, made a wager with Jared that you'd have worked aperture into the conversation. <laughs> I, I would be money good uh, right now. No, I think you nailed it. It was, I mean, to some degree, our model evolved the way that it did out of necessity. So I can't say if I was sitting there and had $100 million to invest and the top five VCs had capacity to take all that $100 million, would I go out and seek out, you know, new and emerging managers? I think I would just because it's my personality, but, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say. Great. And yeah, some of these things, like they're fine for an individual institution to do, but once it's a large proportion of them, then it starts to get potentially adverse for certain managers. But we figured out a way to make it happen. I think part of the reason why we're doing this is to share more perspective and encourage others to have hopefully other uh, paths to fundraising success too. Well, if they want to look, you know, our performance to, 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 to my point earlier about everybody's performance looking good, our performance looks really good. So our model is working, at least in the current environment. <laughs> yes, a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I want to dig in a little bit more to your investment strategy. 
Um, just anything else that you haven't mentioned that you look for in managers. And then I guess, are there any hard no's, like anything that a manager can say or, or have in their background that would make you pass pretty quickly? On the hard no's, I can't think of anything that is, you know, I think a, a general lack of clarity on a strategy comes across pretty uh, transparently. If it's, if there's just a lot of, uh, I can do this because everyone else is doing it, that is not exciting. I mean, does that qualify as a hard no? No, but it, it's certainly not exciting and probably won't get, you know, a second meeting. Um, what about you, Travis? Uh, I, I would have probably went with, um, uh, with, with just sort of a, you know, a, a, whether you call it a life, life's too short or, you know, no a-hole policy. Um, but uh, when I shared that with another VC, he told me that's great and I'm going to miss out on a, on a bunch of really good opportunities because of it. Um, that said, I would say in general, our portfolio does not, does not contain, uh, contain a whole lot of that, which is good. We, I think we generally like our, our partners and, and hopefully our partners like us and we, we view it as a partnership and not you know, handing over, uh, you know, writing a check and then three years later, maybe 18 months later in this environment, we'll, uh, you know, we'll talk to you again. That definitely shows you all are, are amazing partners. And I think that's the right way to approach it. I mean, it's a long-term relationship, right? And so you want to be working with people that you like and can stomach for a couple decades. <laughs> it's a marriage. Um, it is a marriage indeed. Um, so I guess on the flip side, what excites you all? I know you mentioned strong teams, you know, strong references, clear strategy, but is there anything else that helps you guys filter through the noise and get conviction around you know, certain firms? I mean, I, I would say that there are managers that we meet that just bring a different lens, a different segment of the market where, uh, you know, what, what I've learned is that you could take 10 meetings in a row and you could be excited with the first meeting of a manager. And then you realize that the next nine meetings you do of nine different managers are doing the exact same thing. So there is some perspective of understanding what is nuanced and, and exciting. Um, but I, I think that for us, if you kind of take a look at where our portfolio is on a go forward basis, the, the things that we continue to do more work on are kind of three things. One is, is international. We have some exposure in, in Europe, some exposure in, in Asia. Uh, we've recently started committing to some funds in, in India with existing partners. But, you know, we realize that, you know, what's the stat, Travis? Almost, you know, 50 cents on the dollars being deployed ex-US. And so there, there is definitely a need for, for perhaps more exposure there. So that's one area of focus for us. Um, two is sector specialization. Our portfolio is roughly 60-40 tech to healthcare. So certainly over indexed to healthcare compared to most of our peers, but it's treated us pretty well. Um, we're 60-40 early stage to growth, and I'm using air quotes for growth because there's a lot of different definitions of that. But as you think about other segments of the economy that are, you know, as large a percentage of GDP as healthcare is, you know, you could look at real estate, you could look at financials, you could look at, you know, retail consumer. And the question that we continue to ask ourselves is, is it in our best interest to invest in some of these more dedicated, focused sector specialist funds where, you know, the idea that a secular headwind could kind of handcuff you 
and and kind of upside if, if something happened in whether it's real estate or financials or the consumer, as opposed to being able to be a little bit more fluid uh, in your deployment. So we, we continue to work on that. We don't have data um, or have seen data like we've seen in buyout that shows sector specialists tend to outperform, but uh, that's something that we continue to, to work through. And then the third area is just growth. Um, you know, when, when Michigan started this investing in venture in 1983 with, with the likes of Excel, all there was was early stage. And so it really wasn't until kind of the, the late 2000s and then into the teens that, you know, all of our early stage managers started having platforms with select growth opportunity vehicles. And, and that has, to some degree, taken up more of our portfolio. And I think that there is room for growth in the portfolio, as, uh, as Travis likes to hear me say, growth is certainly a permanent asset class these days. And alpha that used to be captured in the public markets when software companies went uh, public at three, four, three, four, five hundred million dollars back when I used to cover software at Morgan Stanley. That just doesn't happen anywhere. So um, for us, you know, we're just not capturing a lot of that alpha in the public markets. And so we need to be thoughtful about how do we go about capturing that in the private markets, not just as a venture team, but as a private equity team. And so those are certainly some of the areas that we continue to get excited about, but are you know measured in how we ultimately will deploy in those three areas. Got it. And then on pacing, it would be great to hear how you think about how many new managers you bring in the portfolio per year or how many dollars you allocate to new managers per year. Just curious how you guys think about pacing uh, within privates, within VC. I, I, I think uh, slow, uh, <laughs> uh, slow down uh, would be the, the right way to do it. Um, you know, to be honest, we, we, we walked into 2020 one, you know, we had a pretty good plan walking into the year, uh, thought that we had uh, the existing kind of pacing nailed uh, with some room to add around the edges. And that plan lasted about three weeks into January as everyone was coming back bigger, faster, new strategies. And we will end up deploying uh, well over our kind of anticipated target for the year. Um, and we're trying to be more measured and thoughtful in what 2022 looks like. And what we are unsure of is what is the, the nature of the new venture fund pacing. Um, and we haven't done anything draconian to, to change our commitments to existings, but the, the pace of people coming back so quickly has certainly slowed our ability to add new managers um, without a doubt. Uh, if you kind of take a look at where we were and uh, when did venture spin out? 2016, 2015, 2016? You know, we had, you know, low, low double digits as far as kind of core managers that we had then. And we've added a handful each and every year, you know, give or take over the last five years. And, you know, we have 30-ish managers. Now, some of those managers are small checks. Um, and there are segments of the market that, you know, if you think about our average check being kind of 30 to 50, that we're not going to deploy $50 million into a seed fund. The fund size won't allow it. And, you know, conviction is, is you know, has to be there. But we have a, a thought process of aggregating a handful of seed managers into a core position. So is that, you know, do I really view those as five different positions? Sure. But, you know, it is something where that is kind of a core position in, uh, in a segment of the market that, that we like. And so, 
Where we are now is a place that we feel pretty comfortable as far as the number of managers. Uh, there's room to grow, but we're not necessarily looking to double down on something that we have with an existing manager. So that's where it really comes down to either it's nuanced and it's exciting and it's additive to the portfolio, or you know we reach a point of, of at some point forced displacement, saying if we like this manager, who's the one that's going to have to um, you know uh, do we not continue with? And we we haven't made any of those decisions yet. But it is it, there's not a never-ending addition to managers because they we want to have close relationships with all of them, and we want to be able to to spend the time with them. That's helpful. So I wanted to talk about LPGP relationships. So after you make that you know first investment in that first fund, we'd love to hear some of the great things and best practices that your top GPs do, um, and any advice you have for others as they're thinking about continuing to grow and maintain relationships with their, their LPs? Yeah, I think, and, and to Ryan's point, we intentionally try to limit the number of managers in, in our portfolio so that, so that we can be more involved, have more touch points. Um, you know, part of that is driven probably candidly because of our co-investment program as well, right? We want to know what our GPs are doing uh, we want to know if there are opportunities for us to partner with them in specific industries, specific companies, et cetera. Um, but it also just makes us, it makes the subsequent fund conversation so much easier if you've had an ongoing dialogue and you've seen how the portfolio has developed and, you know, the team has developed and everything is sort of going to plan and where it's not going to plan, you've had a discussion with the sponsor as to why it's not. I think actually that's something you guys have been great about. You know, we've had ongoing dialogue to my point earlier, when we met you the first time you had a plan and you've, you know, consistently executed on that plan and, and anywhere that, that you've deviated, it's been a, it's been a conversation and not a, and a conversation where it wasn't even a surprise because, you know, you, you could kind of see it coming. Maybe there was a one-off conversation or something that happened beforehand. So I think, you know, communication, transparency, um, I would I would have said there can't be too much of that, but I did have a GP once that it just felt like every day was something. Uh, so perhaps that's 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 not the case. Um, but uh, it's that's a that's a tough bar to jump over as far as as far as too much. I think if you just have conversations and, and ongoing transparent, you know, and honest communication, you know, intelligent minds might disagree but everyone understands where the other is coming from. And I think it just leads to better outcomes all around. That's great. Yeah. Thank you guys. I mean, you all have been an amazing partners. I think about, you know, we're raising our fund too. We had some things to discuss and you all handle it in a very professional and friendly way. I think we can always, you know, count on you guys to give us good feedback, but also not be too hard charging with it either. I think it's been a good mix of being serious, but also understanding. Um, Great. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk about emerging managers. Um, we think that maybe from your perspective, it may be a different set of parameters that you're looking for. Uh, but I guess, is there anything in particular that helps emerging managers stand out? Some examples could be spinning out of a top firm or being an operator. Uh, but I'm curious, is there any patterns or trends you're seeing around some of the emerging managers that you've backed on that fund one, fund two? I, I don't know if I've identified any any patterns yet. You know, the, the idea of someone spinning out of a of a more established firm is one where 
that's perhaps one of the easier ones to understand and to to diligence. Uh, you know, if it's you know someone that was an existing uh, manager, then you know we've got the ability to kind of go deep into how they were at their previous firm, or even if we weren't, the ability to take a track record with is super helpful. I think the logic behind some people's moves make total sense. Uh, you know, in a world where early stage investors are becoming platform investors and funds are getting bigger and, you know, the ability of a GP to want to do something that is more, uh, more boutique and, and, and smaller checks and, and just a different model makes total sense. You know, that's where they were 15 years ago. And, you know, perhaps now it's just a, uh, a time to reset and, and do something else, you know, uh, folks who have kind of the entrepreneurial bug of wanting to kind of own something and hang, hang out a shingle, I, I get that. Certainly lots of operators out there. And I think that there are, there are folks, you know, operators that join established firms where they're part of a, of a machine. Um, and I get that the model that's been going for the last 10 or so years of being more value add to the portfolio and where those operators come in. I think that, and we've backed operators on funds before. I, I think the long-term question we ask ourselves is, you know, we, we understand that venture is not easy. It's an art. Running a fund is difficult. It's more than just meeting with companies and writing checks. And so we want to make sure that those folks who are hanging up a shingle understand that there is the business side of this as well that takes up, you know, and you guys can probably speak to this, you know, as well of just how much work it goes into running a firm, not just writing the checks and stuff like that. And so being able to understand who's really in this for the long haul, because you don't want to back a manager and fund to, they're like, you know what, this is a lot harder than I thought it was. This isn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be. And so there are certainly some things that we're mindful there. Um, you know, there is a, a, a continued rise of the solo GP, which allows them to act nimbly, but certainly introduces a lot of key person risk or as I like to call it, hit by bus risk. Um, you know, it's just a, a lot that you have to think through when it's just one person that is out there. But, you know, there's no denying that there are a lot of avenues of people wanting to start venture firms. And, you know, we talked to some emerging managers who are perhaps even uh, slower paced than we would have thought because they're mindful not to get lost in the, in the shuffle of, of running through funds very, very quickly. Um, so I think those are a few things that, that we think about, um, on the emerging side, um, as far as sources of GPs, anything to add, Travis? No, just, I, I think the opera, you know, an operator, and this is perhaps, you know, me layering in my own feelings, right? If I'm an entrepreneur and someone's telling me how to run my business, I, I want them to have run a business before versus being, uh, you know, uh, purely financial, you know, finance focused, you know, then that's just me. And I, I think that you can have, you can empathize with the founder, but it's just going to be a better conversation. Uh, to your point though, the fund is a business in itself. So having the appropriate people to help run that, uh, that's where the, you know, and we've done it. It's usually smaller scale and seed for the solo GP, but my, I guess my preference would be for there to be a, a partnership that a partnership that makes sense where people have complementary skill sets is more ideal from my perspective. Very helpful. I wanted to talk a little bit about diverse managers. I think after 2020, particularly with 
George Floyd, there had been a lot of initiatives from corporations and others about getting more diversity in terms of managers. Does state of Michigan have any initiatives or any perspective on that? I mean, you all have, to my knowledge, been pretty good and fair, but I'm just curious, are you guys, do you have anything or is there anything in the works around getting more diversity into your GP pool? So, I mean, we've been doing it not because of uh, any sort of a mandate, but because we think it's an opportunity to make outsized returns relative to the risk that you're taking. I mean, I think, you know, we were doing it before it was cool, I guess. <laughs> so, and, and, our, and our rationale then was the same as our rationale now. It's like you have, where you have a manager who, because of a market dynamic or a familiarity with the space or, you know, pick your reason that they have, that they're differentiated, they're going to, you know, do better, uh, right? And if there's a dearth of capital in that space, and you've got a manager who you think is going to source better, then the returns just compound. So, you know, so our approach there has been the same way that we evaluate any manager is the way we evaluate a diverse manager, and we're going to stack them up against the other opportunities for capital. I think that's the best way to make money, and, and that's the way I would want to be evaluated. I guess is you know I would want to know that I'm getting money because I'm the best thing that they've seen. Um, I'd probably think that anyway, right? But I actually want to, I actually want to know it. Um, so, you know, and that's, you know, to your point, we've done and Ryan would be able to rattle off the list. Uh, I know we, you know, we've put it together before. I actually admittedly was like, I had to actually think, you're like, who are managers that qualify as this? Because I don't, I don't think of them that way. I think of them as who are managers who focus on this space or do this thing, not, you know, necessarily check this box. Uh, I, I think it's great that there's more money, you know, flowing into this space. I hope it's not to our detriment from a driving up valuations and lowering the returns. There's a part of me that, you know, had a preference for no one else paying attention, but uh, that that has definitely changed and on the whole will be a positive. But Ryan, I don't know if you've got more there. No, I, I think you nailed it. Okay. I think that's helpful. I mean, I that approach makes a ton of sense to me. This business is very network driven though. I think some folks have just understood that because of the historical patterns of who's worked at VC firms, who's connected to who, it just can be tougher, all things equal, even with merit, just getting in those rooms. Like so many things lined up for me to meet Robert at the KKR event, right? Mm -hmm. And for you guys to have connections to, and again, it worked out in our advantage, but there are some others that don't even know where to start, uh, particularly if they didn't go to you know Harvard or Stanford business school. But I think you guys are doing great work and that's part of the reason why we exist. Um, you know, we have our platform, we have our internship program, which gets more investors in the VC. And then we're also just highlighting others that hopefully can lead to change. But again, I think you guys are doing a fantastic job. And because you supported us, we're able to open even more doors. And that's what we're very excited about to be able to be, be good stewards. I was just going to say, it's also worked out for us to your point around, you know, networking and connections as, you know, we, we started talking to you, we invested, people found out we invested, reached out to us, you know, and it just, it started this uh, flywheel of connections where now I get, you know, hey, I know you guys do this sort of stuff and I know XYZ manager, you know, what do you think? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about investing and want to take a look. And so that, and I'm not going to use your word, Ryan, but the top of the funnel for us in that space, you know, we started filling it more and we were doing it intentionally before, but it got even easier as we started to 
know, get to know the groups. You know, probably five groups that you think are good in the space that that you know you'd be able to direct us to. And and we to you know to my point earlier, we'll take those meetings and you know and we're going and we're going to find something. That, I, I was going to hit that point exactly. So well done. You guys are like Henri and I. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also want to give some credit to, to Greenspring now Stepstone. I actually have a podcast with Hunter. I feel like they're pretty proactive on this front too. So even though our partner relationship was with you, I think having their support and having all their insight and connections helps too. So I, I'm really happy to have both you all around the table and continue to hopefully develop the partnership over time. No, they, they've been great partners, uh, you know, uh, alongside us for the last handful of years and um, think the world of them for sure. Great. Uh, before we get off this point, I wanted to talk a little bit about your direct strategy, um, just how you think about investing in direct deals, any type of criteria that stick out. I'd just love to hear more about that. Hopefully we can do some co-investing together at some point in the near future. Yeah. So, you know, we started that up April of 2015. So we're six plus years now of executing that, you know, it's gone well. Initially, we actually weren't doing venture or even really growth. It was sort of your regular way, buyout, uh, you know, here's a model. Anybody that went to business school can work through the model and figure out the three assumptions that matter. You ask some questions around those assumptions, you get comfortable, you do it or you don't do it. As we've expanded, again, with some really, really fortunate timing uh, <laughs> into venture and, and growth equity, it's worked out quite well for us, but as Ryan puts, it's a lot more of an art than it is a science. So, um, you know, we lean more heavily there on our sponsor. And we also, you know, unlike the, the buyout world where, you know, they're hunting down an asset, they find it and then they need capital. We endeavor, uh, I, I say, we're getting better. There's always room for improvement to be proactive there and actually, you know, understand you know, again, back to the early to the earlier point on touch points and conversations, understand what's in the portfolio, figure out what it is that we like in the portfolio and why we like it, and then get in front of those, obviously with, you know, not in a way that interferes with what the sponsor's doing, because first and foremost, they care about the fund and that's what we want them to care about. But, you know, to the extent that it, that it makes sense, take those opportunities to get in front of management, talk to management and position ourselves so when a round happens, uh, we're there and able to do it. Uh, the nice thing is, you know, we are of such scale that if there's a hiccup, looking around the table and and trying to find a pocket with capital is easier when one of those pockets has ninety five billion dollars in it. <laughs> Not a bad problem to have. <laughs> it's we have a theory around that. We've seen it play out in a couple of investments where, you know, later stage where, where perhaps there's M&A activity or there's the which way do we go with this? Do we commercialize it ourselves? And we're normally a syndicate of two to $500 million venture investors would not be willing or able to take that next step. We can at least explore it, which if nothing else gives the company some negotiating sway, they can credibly say somebody will stroke a check and we can commercialize this if you don't buy us. Great. So my last question is going to be just on the VC market. But before I do that, I wanted to know if there's anything else you guys want to cover, particularly because there's two of you on. Was there anything else uh, in terms of advice you would like to give to managers or other LPs? I try to avoid giving other LPs advice because <laughs> <laughs> there's enough competition out there. We don't need more. Fair. Uh, fair, fair. <laughs> okay. 
so my final question, uh, there's definitely a lot of changes going on in the market right now for, for early stage VCs, emerging managers. You have multi-stage funds coming due in seed. You're seeing frothy valuations, quicker time to close, potentially lighter diligence. You're seeing Web3 crypto excitement. Uh, I'm curious, any perspective you guys have on the changes in the market and then any advice that you have for newer managers that are trying to navigate these waters? I mean, it, it, it is a little bit crazy out there. Um, I, I struggle with advice because I realize that everyone is just trying to, to stay afloat in a market with a lot of velocity in it. Um, you know, I, I do realize that there are a lot of managers, a lot of GPs that, you know, probably haven't been through a cycle. And so there is some perspective that is just not attainable without having been through a cycle in, in some regard. Uh, I, I joke that some of our managers are probably already building decks on what went wrong so that they're at the ready when things <laughs> go sideways. Uh, but I, I think that you continue to have to have some level of rationality to what you're doing. I do think that there is, you know, that the companies today, you know, we look at this flywheel where I feel as though there's always another investor to do the next round. And what keeps me up at night is what happens when that flywheel breaks. And I don't know what's going to break it, but what is ultimately going to happen? And, you know, the companies today, I feel are, I was around in, you know, for the 2000 crash. And I feel like companies today are real with big TAMs and big companies. And, if, if things go sideways, they've all raised enough capital to, to make through the tough times. It's just being mindful of how do you manage a fund through those times where they may not need capital, but valuations can certainly slow. But if no one's doing down rounds, what does that look like? Uh, and so just general uncertainty, lack of advice here. Uh, I'm just talking in circles, which Travis knows that I do. So. Travis, uh, I gave you time to come up with a better answer. No, I mean, I, my answer and to your point around giving advice, I, I hesitate to give advice, especially when I don't have, you know, it's like you're giving advice for, from the outside or as a perhaps as a Monday morning quarterback, but I, be, be patient and reserve appropriately. I think that would be the, uh, the advice that I would give. And to my point about GPLP relations, right, if, if your LP base has been asking you to slow down, or at least, you know, tap the brakes and you've been plowing money out the door and, you know, uh, 18 months from now, you come back and tell them how you've run out of capital in your fund and you can't defend the positions that, that, that you've invested in and you haven't reserved appropriately. It's not going to be a fun conversation. I'm not saying that you won't get the capital, but if you display some discipline and continue with, with constant communication along the way and, and at least hear what the LPs are saying, that conversation is a lot easier than if it's something that you're just plowing ahead with, despite the fact that perhaps you're meeting some resistance from your LPs or your LPAC. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you both so much for your time and insight. It's a fantastic conversation. And I'm sure our listeners will, will very much appreciate it. Thank well, you. Thanks for having us and thanks for being such a great partner. Thank you guys. Till next time.